0: And that's when I realized this is a stout time I finished second the only guy who beat me was Jean Pommier and some of the guys I finished ahead of are guys that I've respected as much stronger much faster runners and I wrote a blog a race report in my blog which essentially said you know I actually feel like a real runner now I'm not an imposter I'm not this you know kid who would run with his dad and be struggling in a 5k and want to pretend to trip and hurt himself just so he could stop running and have an excuse to
1: quit. Hello and welcome to the race mob podcast. This is episode number 62. I'm Kevin, entrepreneur, technology and fitness nerd, and I'm joined by the head coach of race mob and master motivator, the incomparable Bertrand Newsom. John Burton is an ultra-marathoning, not only is this ultra-fit speed demon from Michigan known to rock the Speedo from time to time, but what really struck me is how humble and warm John really is. Sure, he has so many race wins, podium finishes, and has absolutely crushed a number of different events, but John also highlights the numerous times where the races didn't go his way. We often talk about how grit is needed to achieve your best, to dust yourself off when you fall down and become a better version of yourself. Well, John has this in spades, and it's so evident throughout the conversation. Maybe it was highlighted the most when we talk in detail about his participation at the Barkley Marathon, a race known for being the most grueling on the planet, where only the most elite are invited, and after hearing his story, you'll understand why. Shortly after recording this episode, we found out that John suffered a fairly significant injury. So we really want to wish him a speedy recovery. We're also happy to announce that John will be a weekly race mob contributor. John's gonna be answering your running questions in a weekly column on our site. So subscribe to our newsletter to be able to ask questions and see John's answers. All of the show notes are gonna be found online at racemob.com podcast. And without further ado, here's our conversation.
2: Hello, race mob family. We are in for a fantastic treat, John Burton, the John Burton, renowned trail ultramarathon blogger, renowned trail runner, yes, Western States participant finisher, two-time Boston marathoner, and has participated in the acclaimed uh, Barkley Marathon. Welcome, John.
0: Hey, hey, Coach D and Casey, thanks for having me.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're thrilled to have you on the podcast, obviously, historic career, done a lot of things that runners can only dream about doing. I guess, talk to us about early life. Where did you grow up? Yeah, yeah, sure. Casey, but first, you know,
0: I just wanted to say
1: that the intro there, you guys
0: uh, kind of cherry picked <laughs> some of the highlights with the Western States, Finisher, and Boston, and the Barclay Marathons. But, you know, I, I find it odd no one ever introduces me as, you know, John Burton, who DNF'd his first 200 miler attempts, or the Barkley Marathon's loser, or John Burton, who dropped out of the Oakland Marathon and walked back to his car in a Speedo and a cape, you know, in shame through the, the bad part of town, where people had no idea that there was a race going on. It's like, what is this guy doing? Or, you know, John Burton, who dropped out of the Mount Charleston Revel Marathon and called an Uber at mile 20 and sat down on the side of the road because <laughs> he couldn't even walk the last six miles and had an, an Uber with escorted by two police come pick him up from the, <laughs> the side of the road. So yeah, but uh, thanks for the uh, the introduction. No, what I, I guess I, I was going to say here is, you know, one of the things I, I often mention to people is that, yeah, I, I have some successes, but I also have a, a lot of failures and, you know, people don't always notice those. And, you know, if you look through my ultra signup results, I actually have more DNFs than uh, race wins. And I'm sure you guys probably are familiar with this, but, you know, I, I love that Michael Jordan quote where, you know, the guy has what, six NBA championship rings and he's been MVP. And, you know, he just says, I've missed more than 9000 shots in my career, right? <laughs> Lost 300 games and 26 times I've been called on to make the game winning shot and missed it. And I think that's important that, uh, you know, it's good to talk about the accolades and the successes, but it's also, I think, good to mention in full transparency, there's setbacks and there's injuries and there's races that didn't go according to plan. And, you know, just because you fail at something doesn't make you a failure. And uh, yeah, so, but again, thanks, thanks for the good introduction.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, you miss a hundred percent of the shots that you don't take and it takes so much guts just to show up at the starting line that's what we always tell our athletes right i mean just show up there at the starting line and just the fact that you're showing up at the starting line for these 100 milers i mean that's heads and shoulders above what most of us will ever 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 think about being able to do and and so yeah kudos to you for for doing all that
0: well i think most of us can do it but yeah you're right there kevin (laughs) most of us think we can't or don't even bother to try but yeah you can do a lot more than you think you can okay So you asked about, you know, kind of background and growing up. I was born in a small Native American Indian reservation in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And Coach B knows this, but uh, how do I preface this? I'm prone a little bit to exaggeration or, or stretching the truth. I was an English literature major in college and, you know, writer, written some books and magazine articles and things. And there's an expression: "Never let the facts get in the way of telling a good story." <laughs> so, 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 if if you know, my, my family listens to this podcast, they might uh, be doing a little fact checking and being, wait a minute, you you didn't technically grow up in a, a goat shed or a, a chicken coop, but, but yeah. So, my father, when when I was born, he built this kind of twelve by twelve shed out of uh, lumber that he would uh, Found uh, repurposed on a neighbor's <laughs> a neighbor's yard, and yeah, it was just a simple twelve by twelve shed, no running water. I think we, we did have electricity, and uh, he built me a crib out of you know wood and stuff. And uh, so that that's was my introduction. And later, after we moved out, then my grandmother turned it into a, a goat shed and a chicken coop. So it wasn't like we we kicked the goats and the chickens out. <laughs> but but when I tell the story, uh, I was I was born <laughs> in a goat shed. <laughs> And uh, Yeah, we had, had some rough times the, the first couple of years, and we were homeless for a bit. So my father was working at a, a gas station in Ypsilanti, Michigan, back then when it was uh, full service. You know, you had someone pump your gas and clean your windshield, check the oil, all of that. And uh, we, had, we slept in, uh, I think it was a Rambler station wagon we had there in the parking lot, and took showers with a, a hose on the side of the building. And during the days, this is kind of how I got my introduction to uh, endurance sports or <laughs> athletic training. You know, sometimes it was pretty busy when, when cars are coming in to get serviced, and so my father bought me a tricycle. And in the storeroom of the gas station, he'd moved all the boxes and things into the middle of the room, so there's kind of this nice little track around the outside perimeter of this little storeroom. And I would ride my tricycle and just ride laps around there. And uh, there was, you know, four corners, obviously, and in the third turn, the third corner, there was this big giant deadly spider. It's probably, you know, a daddy, <laughs> daddy long leg, but in my mind as a child, this was some deadly poisonous spider that was trying to kill me. And so essentially I was doing hours of interval training back before I even knew what intervals were, right? I'd ride slow until I got to that corner and then sprint as hard as I could, <laughs> get to safety and then catch my breath for the next three turns and then sprinting out of that corner again. So, I mean, I'm sure it was a little bit traumatic and I probably... Explains why I'm still scared to death of spiders to this day. But it was it was pretty good training. And I, you know, as a three-year-old, I'm pretty sure I would have beaten anyone else in the uh, <laughs> tricycle <laughs> tricycle racing. But um, yeah, then you know, we kind of, my father got his feet under him and got a job at General Motors and got a house and did not have to live in the back of a station wagon <laughs> and a uh, shower and bathtub and all that great stuff that you know people have. And my father, you know, he, he struggled with substance abuse and, you know, a lot, a lot of things like that. But uh, he is a really good guy and all, always there for me. And he was a marathoner. I mean, he was a three-hour marathoner. And, wow. you know, he, every wow. day he'd have his cigarette, his cup of coffee, then he'd go for his run. And then after his run, he'd have another cigarette. And, <laughs> you know, it was, I guess that was, you know, the 70s, things were like that, or the 80s. but um yeah, that's where I got my, my love of running. He used to take me running in the evenings. It was probably just a 5k, but we, we'd run every night. And he also got me into cycling. I'm a big cyclist. And we rode, I remember a couple hundred miles. We'd go on these bikepacking trips together and just riding in the rain. I think one point we were riding on the highway and people pulled over and told him it was child abuse to have his you know, <laughs> young kid riding on the highway <laughs> in the rain, but, but I loved it. So yeah, those are good times. But I think that's where my lot of my athletic came from i have to thank my father for keeping me active and and getting me out there but yeah i ran ran cross country in high school i was not particularly fast or anything but i enjoyed it and was on a cycling club with some buddies and even in high school we'd go ride 100 miles a day and uh like four days riding across the whole state of michigan and this was before gels or at least i didn't know anything about nutrition and sports strengths and it was all fueled on McDonald's French fries. Uh, I guess that's where my son gets it from. And, uh, oh, sorry, you guys. We had a story before we went on air about my my son and, and McDonald's French fries. But yeah, we Mike and Ike's Mountain Dew. I mean, those were <laughs> those were the the fuel back then. So I'd always been pretty active, running, cycling. And when I moved out here to California, that's when I was first introduced to the trail running scene and really found my my stride there. Something that I enjoy, which is yeah, you know, I still. We'll go out and run on the roads so or the bike paths and do an occasional marathon, but I think trail running is really where, where my heart is at.
1: Incredible. Yeah. So what brought you out to the Bay Area? Money.
0: <laughs> <laughs> show, show me
1: the money. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I got my MBA at Central Michigan University, and uh, Casey, your parents went to
1: Michigan State? Is that yeah, right? yeah. That's yeah. right. They went to Michigan State. That's yeah. So I'm
0: from, from Lansing, Michigan. That's where I went to high school, and my my mother... Lived in Spartan Village over there at Michigan State, so I spent a lot of time over there. But I went to the University of Michigan, so it was kind of a, yeah. I see, tough, yeah. Sometimes <laughs> so Thanksgiving and Christmas, a lot of family <laughs> drama over football games. But but then I was doing my, my graduate work at uh, Central Michigan University, where they had an SAP software installation. And I was teaching business computer classes there. And a recruiter came out to recruit some of my students. And, you know, he was telling me the starting salary and all the benefits I'm like, man, that's like twice what I'm making here. (laughs) And so I said, I have one resume for you. (laughs) Gave him my resume and got the job at SAP. And I I spent 21 years there until uh, last November when I was uh, traded or sold off to a a Swedish company called Cinch. They do uh, telecommunications, SMS messaging stuff. But, But yeah, that's what brought me out here was job opportunities back in the 1999,
1: late 90s. Wow. Incredible. You're a software product manager, right? That's right. Yeah. Fantastic. Just like me. So <laughs> right, right. So. Same, same field, same field. So, I mean, I guess talk to us a little bit about your start into running. So you said trail running was kind of one of the, the major things that you got into when you got out here in the Bay Area. Yeah. Like I said,
0: I, I ran a lot and cycled a lot when, when I was young It was always active. I was out doing something, camping, running, cycling, and, but then college, it's a stressful time. And <laughs> no, I was a... student in high school, and I got an academic scholarship to the University of Michigan. I I took academics pretty seriously. People who know me are like, John, you took partying seriously. (laughs) Okay, so I took academics and partying very seriously, and that did not leave a lot of time for training. So during college, you know, I probably put on 15, 20 pounds, and I would still go out in the evenings. I had a couple of buddies, Doug Woodhams, who's a sheriff down in Southern California. If Doug's listening, he will want me to tell the story about the time we were out running one evening. And got pulled over by the police for running too fast. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> running too fast? <laughs> yeah, well, that's how we
0: tell the story. But it was, in fairness, it was 10, 11 o'clock at night, and we wanted to go out for a little, you know, five mile run or whatever. And my father had instilled in me that you always sprint at the end of your run, no matter how long it is. When I mean, we get to smell the barn, you, you know, turn the corner and see the house. We'd always have that final sprint to work on our finishing kick. And so I, I kept that even, you know, in, in college. And so my buddy Doug and I would have these sprints at the end of our runs, but we'd progressively start launching them further and further out because it was like a, a whole kilometer. You could see our dorms from the street. And so we got to the point where as soon as we turned that corner and there was one K to go, we'd start sprinting. And so, yeah, we're just running as hard as we can down this road, 11 o'clock at night. And a local police officer sees us and I don't know, things are up to no good. So he turns on his lights and we don't stop or pull over because we want to get to the finish line. So he's chasing us for, you know, a good minute or two. And then luckily it turned out all right. We did not get shot or tased or, or tear or anything. Uh, yeah. But why, why, where's the story going? Oh, yeah. So I was a sporadic athlete in, in college, you know. Wasn't really training that much. And as I said, academics and probably partying getting in the way. But when I got the job at, at SAP and moved out to California, there were a couple of guys who do running. Uh, my buddy Satit do running at lunch. And I'm like, well, yeah, I'm a runner. I'll go out and run with you guys. I couldn't make it around the block without walking. Oh, wow. right. Like I'd been a decent cross country runner. I was fourth or fifth on my team, you know, lifetime athlete. But consistency 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 and that's why I never take a day off anymore I I try not to have breaks because I remember how terrible that felt like, with what, what's going on am I at altitude I mean why can't I even run around the block without having to stop to walk and it was probably several weeks of that where just run a block walk a block and just I was so embarrassed right like what's happened to me and that was, that was definitely a wake-up call and so that got me back into both cycling and running. And then I think I joined Silicon Valley Triathlon Club.
1: Mm, yeah. Because yeah. I'd
0: been a triathlete in high school. And so I did some triathlons out here and had uh, yeah, a group of, you know, as Kevin is, Casey, as you always uh, preach, community, right? Just having people keep you accountable and show up to do the the ride or the run together, you know, Tuesday night track or whatever, Sunday morning, early bike rides. And, and that really helped me, just having a, a group of people, kind of similar speed that uh, we, we trained together and I thought I got in fairly decent shape I'm like oh yeah I'm in great shape now and so I signed up for this uh half marathon at Hutter Park I don't know if you guys know Woodside Hills oh, Park Yeah, Hills, Park, yep. hills yes yep. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was not training on the hills <laughs> so the race starts and the first mile I think is flat or downhill I'm in the lead right I'm, I already plotting my victory speech and my celebration. and This was before Facebook, so I wasn't plotting what I was going to put on Facebook. But man, after a mile or so, we hit the first switchback and it kicked uphill and a few people passed me. And I thought, yeah, all right, it's cool. No, no worries. Then a few more people passed me and I start walking. And then it's, you know, the first people who were past me were wearing singlets and 135 pounds, looked like serious runners. And then people started passing me who, you know, were in high top shoes and <laughs> wearing some, you know, carrying a few extra pounds and pushing baby Hoodies. strollers. Yeah. <laughs> I just, oh man, I was demoralized. And that's, that's when I realized this California Hills is a, a whole nother thing. And I was not in the, the great shape that I thought I was, but uh, yeah, kept at it, kept plugging away at it. And, uh, a few years later, I went back and did that same race, and I, I think I finished maybe third. And that's where I met my wife. She'd won the women's race, and we were both just standing around the the food table at the end, stuffing our face with whatever you know unhealthy food they they have at the end of those races—M Ms or I don't know what it was. But, but yeah, it was a, it was a long road, many many years of thinking I was where I wanted to be, and then realizing no, <laughs> I was still still a long way to go. But yeah, eventually, kind of found my groove there in in trail running. And my wife had mentioned that she and one of her friends, Christina Irvin, who's, she was a 10 times Western States finisher. And I think she's done the hard rock, hard rock, which is my favorite ultra marathon. I've done that one twice. She'd done it, I think 10 times, finished eight times. And so having someone like that, just old school ultra runner back before social media and before you could find, you know, podcasts and, and blogs, you just had to talk to people who'd done it before. And, yeah, so I learned a lot from that, and that—that's how I got uh, introduced to to trail running and ultra running. And uh, yeah, I mean, never really looked back. It's it's still kind of where my heart is up in the mountains.
1: That's incredible. Yeah.
2: And how was that? I mean, let's take us back to that. That uh, that was a the the run when you came back and conquered Hutter Park the second time. <laughs> yeah. A uh, third place finish, but you also won the big prize. And you met your wife there. Yeah. How how was that? I mean, you know, couldn't, you know, do you want some of these M&Ms? How, how was that conversation? <laughs>
0: well, <laughs> I won third place. You look at my, look at my medal, huh? Yeah. I mean, I, I say third. It might've been fifth. I don't, might've been fourth. I'd have to go back and, and check. I don't even know if those results are online. But yeah, no, she confessed later. She thought I was like some young uh, Stanford collegiate college kid. And because we both kind of look a, a little young for our age, I guess. And I'm pretty sure, you know, I don't have a lot of a lot of game. I'm pretty sure she's the one who came over and, and talked to me. And then I was like, oh, yeah, nice meeting you. See you later. And she's like, well, do you want to get my phone number or something? <laughs> so, yeah, you know, like I said, I you think you're at one level and then you realize, no, no, I got a lot to learn
2: still. And how cool that you, from the point of first meeting each other, that you knew you had something in common right there. It's one thing to... To, to be involved or meet somebody who you just like in general, but for them to share the same passion just takes it to a different level, man. So, and very accomplished. She won the race. First one, we're Yes,
0: I mean, I'm a little faster than her, but, you know, she's a, a better runner. You know, she wins more races than, than I do. And I think one time she even, at the Tahoe Rim Trail, 100-mile race... She was the first runner from our Quicksilver running club, so she beat all of us men as well. She was <laughs> right wow. up there, just I think a little over twenty-four hours for that for that race. Yeah, but now we've got a well, he's going to say thirteen-year-old son. We got our son's about to turn fourteen, and he used to be a runner, but now he's he's getting really into mountain biking these days. But you know how kids are. One day they're playing Roblox, one day it's Fortnite, one day it's Minecraft. So I expect he'll he'll find his way back to running at some point. But I'm not. One of those fathers who tries to, you know, here's your workout today. You're gonna do five by eight hundred, and you know, just. I'm happy that he enjoys being outside, hiking, and begrudgingly running and mountain biking. So, yeah, being active, being outdoors for me, that's that's what it's all about. Being healthy. We won't tell them the McDonald's story. <laughs> 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 or should we? <laughs> I think we should. We've referenced it now. The other day, my son asked me to take him out mountain biking because we sent him to a mountain biking camp for a week where he had a lot of fun. And uh, he's never really been that good of a a climber on hills. You know, just even a a mild hill, he'll have to walk his bike and push it. So, you know, I'm always reluctant to take him mountain biking with me. I'll go do my workout and then, you know, I'll I'll take him somewhere. But, you know, he said, hey, I want to go to this park. And I thought, yeah, all right, let's go give it a shot. And we're riding and the first hill is a pretty steep hill. I'm like, well, dude, come on. Don't go that way. Let's go around and take the other hill. And sure enough, he rides up it and makes it up this this reasonably steep hill. I'm like, oh, man, that camp, seven, you know, seven, five days of training, and suddenly he's riding hills. But then he points to the steepest hill in the park. It's just this ridiculously steep hill, and it's like 40% grade. It, it, for people who are from the Bay Area, if you're familiar with uh, Montgomery Hill Park, then you'll know the, the steep hill that I'm talking about over there by Evergreen College. And so I'm like, yeah, okay. Well, let's let's ride up it. I'm gonna give you some space so that when you roll backwards, you don't crash into me. And but he's you know he's confident talking smack about how he's gonna make it up to the the garbage can. You know it's just three quarters of the way up the hill where it kind of flattens out. And I feel like he was hustling me a little bit now in retrospect because he's like, if I make it up there, well, uh, will you buy me McDonald's for lunch? Because oh, we don't eat a lot of fast food. I'm like, dude, if you make it up there, I'll buy you everything on the McDonald's menu. <laughs> so he takes off sprinting, and I'm just laughing to myself. He's way ahead of me. I'm like, oh, <laughs> too young and naive. <laughs> you know, I got to admire his heart. And so it's, it starts getting steeper and steeper, and it hits the really steep part, and I see him slowing down. And I just start chuckling, I'm like, ah, oh, <laughs> here, here we go. And then but I'm cheering him on, like, yeah, do it for the burger. You got this. And then I hear him talking to me, and there's no strain in his voice. He's like, oh, I'm getting that burger. <laughs> and then I, I look, and he's riding pretty strong. I'm like, oh, beep. <laughs> like, no, no way. <laughs> sure enough, he's just grinding, makes it all the way up to the top. And, you know, I'm cheering for him to crash, cheering for a squirrel to run through his spokes, take him out, anything to save me from <laughs> having to buy him several thousand calories worth of uh, junk food. But, yeah, he made it up there, and... We ended up negotiating a little bit, and he, he settled for some Taco Bell for, for three tacos, not for everything on the menu. But yeah, yeah, man. it's uh, <laughs> Oh, he was
1: definitely times. hustling you. He was definitely I, hustling you. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. I got hustled for sure. <laughs> well, I want to get back to a couple of stories and some that you mentioned kind of in, in the intro. So, I mean, talk to us about the the Golden Speedo, you know, Oakland Marathon, you know, talk to us about a couple of these failures as well. I mean, I'd love to just get into, you know, some of the stories and and when you started hitting some of your successes, because we know that you're an accomplished runner as well. So
0: yeah, yeah. Thanks, Casey. So when people ask me about some of the successes and, you know, I've, I've run Western States, I think I did 20 hours, 37 minutes one time and then 21 hours <laughs> Yeah. Wow. And, you know, so I, mm. uh, I won this Ooh. race in Canada, a fat dog, 122 miler, which is a hardest ultra marathon in Canada. I've had some successes and people, I think sometimes think, well, you know, you got good genetics or you're just this amazing runner who crushes everything. And, and there's probably some truth to the genetics part and I probably do have some genetic gifts, but a lot of it is just trial and error. And, you know, like I said, I've lost more race or I've DNF more races than I've, I've won races. And I think one of the, one of the things Casey is, you know, some people kind of go out and run the same pace and all their training runs. And then, you know, if you're training at nine minute mile, for example, and then you think I'm going to go do this marathon and I'm going to run seven minute miles. Cause I'm just going to dig in on race day. It's all going to be there. And at least from my experience, that that's not how it works, right? You need to have Races, call them trial races, you know, maybe a race you don't care about as much, a half marathon. And you go out at that seven-minute pace and see if you can do the half marathon at seven-minute pace. And then sign up for another marathon, maybe not the Boston Marathon, you know, a local one by you, something here, maybe CIM. And go out and try your, you know, your goal pace on that one and see if you can make 18, 20 miles before you blow up. And at least for me, that's been a strategy that's been successful is to to try to start with smaller smaller races, smaller distances, and see if I can hit the the pace that I'm going for, but you know, like you were saying, sometimes you, you shoot for the stars and, and you don't make it, and I, I think that's okay. Not every race has to be I crushed it, I hit my goals. It's okay to take a risk sometimes, set some big, audacious goal that you think you probably can't hit. Maybe there's a you know five percent chance you can, and go for it. And if it doesn't work out, there's no shame in that. At least not for me, right? I was just I was trying something I knew I probably wouldn't be able to do. I thought maybe I could, and if it happens, amazing. If it doesn't, and you don't hit that goal, you can probably still salvage something from it, right? You go back and you look at that race and you say, okay, what were the positives? Well, I was able to hold that pace for 18 miles. Or, you know, what went wrong, but I I learned from it, maybe can correct next time. Well, maybe seven-minute pace wasn't, I'm not quite in that shape. Maybe 7.15 pace I could hold, so that's, that's been my approach is, you know, go hard, take risks. They're not always going to work out, but the consistency and the the constantly, well, not constantly, but the occasionally pushing yourself, I think is what you need to do to have those really big breakthrough races where you, you crush a PR or you finish a race you, you never thought you could finish. But yeah, let's look at some of, the, some of the examples where maybe things didn't go great. And you brought up Oakland. And just for the record, it was not a golden Speedo. I, I do have a golden Speedo. <laughs> but it was an Oakland Raiders Speedo. Uh, oh, yeah.
1: uh <laughs> And technically,
0: technically, I think it was boy shorts, not even a Speedo. So, you know, like I said, I'd never let the facts get in the way of, of telling a good story. So there I am in my golden Speedo and my, my Oakland Raiders cape. And I'm at the starting line. Feeling a little self conscious. But you know, I was in pretty good shape that year and the abs were, were out and ripped and I'm like, you know what? If you got it, far it. So I'm just standing there, <laughs> hands on hips, in the front of the starting line before the race. The Oakland Raider cheerleaders are there and pointing and whispering and they're probably saying, Look at this dork. But in my mind, they're like, Hey, check that guy out. He's gonna he's gonna win this thing. So the gun goes off and I go off, man. In the lead. <laughs> First couple miles. As you probably expect, things are feeling great. (laughs) But around, was it, mile six or mile eight, that old Oakland, the marathon course had this big hill, about an 800-foot hill, I think. It starts kicking up into Piedmont Hills, for people who know the area. And I'm a good hill runner. Now I am. Not not back in the days when I was walking up (laughs) Hunter Park, but I've since become a decent hill runner. Charging up that hill, feeling great, and things are still going well. I don't know where it was, somewhere, let's say mile 20, that sounds about right, 18, mile 20, it just hits me, like, the wheels come off the bus, energy system gone, and everyone starts passing me, I'm walking, and, you know, I, obviously, I could have, well, I could probably walk another six miles or eight miles, or however it was to the finish, but, you know, I just, I didn't feel like it, <laughs> my god, like, oh, this is, what's the, it's not training at that point, right, it's like, okay. I finished marathons before. I finished, I I think I was, uh, I won a trophy first master's at Oakland Marathon. And I had one of those giant checks with a $150, you know, check Mm -hmm. that the mayor, Libby, Mm -hmm. presented. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'd had this kind of positive experience there and I thought, well, do I really want to walk it in and I should just take a shortcut through town and drive home and, you know, try again at the next race. And so, yeah, I just start cutting through the, the shortcut, and then I'm tired of just even walking. I sit down on the curb, I'm like, I gotta catch my breath. And I look around at the other runners sitting on the curb, and then I realize, no, these are not runners. It's, you know, homeless people, maybe some early morning. And that's use the there i'm not sure <laughs> some sex workers possibly and the police are rolling by and then i look down and i'm in my speedo and cape i'm like oh no they're gonna think that i'm part of you know, this uh, sex worker what is going on over here <laughs> yeah what's, what's he up to go raiders so, so i quickly you know Raider get my race Nation. bib out of my pocket yeah go raiders to so show the race bib to the police, and yeah, i'm in the race and i start <laughs> walking back to to my car i eventually made it back to the car but You know, win some, lose some, I I guess. But uh, I think at the beginning, I also mentioned this Mount Charleston Revel Marathon out in Las Vegas. Some of our listeners are probably familiar with that or have even run that one. So it's rather famous in that it's a downhill marathon with several thousand feet of, of downhill. And the idea is that it will help you qualify for Boston if you're one of those runners who are kind of, you know, just on the cusp there, you maybe you just need to take a minute off your time or a couple of minutes off your time. The attraction is sign up for this downhill marathon. You'll you'll crush it. Which is true if you've got, you know, quads like a Dean Carnaz's or <laughs> or somebody. But if you're a regular person and you hammer twenty miles down a mountain <laughs> on pavement, what's probably gonna happen is what's happened to me is your legs are mush when you get to the bottom. And then suddenly, you know, I was doing 620 630 miles down this hill feeling great like i've never run so fast i'm gonna crush my i'd run you know a 259 52 at boston so just under three hours and i thought i'm gonna destroy my boston time i'm gonna run a 255 here hit those flats and i think the road kicked up maybe one percent right like it's tough to say if it was flat if it was a slight uphill and i'm like oh this is uphill um forget this i'm done i just sat down on the road and caught my breath i tried to start running again and i was just my legs were completely trashed and this time i honestly thought i don't think i can walk eight miles like without doing serious damage to my my muscles and my legs and i had my phone on me and i thought i wonder if i could call an uber is there service here and i check and sure enough self-service so i'm like oh yes thank you so i call the uber and i'm talking and then Oh, you you text Uber or whatever. But then I actually call the driver and explain where I'm at. I'm like, now, there might be a roadblock there. I don't think they're letting traffic through. So you might have to, like, drive on the side of the road or something to get here. (laughs) And then a minute later, I see these two police cars with their lights flashing. And there's this black Uber Behind the police, he's getting a police escort (laughs) down the road and rolls up. And then I feel like such a jerk, right? Because I'm like, oh, no, this is making a huge scene. The other runner's like, oh, is this? what's going on here? And I'm getting in the Uber. Then we're driving on the side of the road to get out of there. And I'm just trying to tuck my head down so nobody
1: sees me through the (laughs)
0: windows getting Ubered off the course. But, yeah, you know, it was actually... A friend of mine, Bill Pritchett from, from Michigan, just reminded me of a time we did this marathon in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and I got an ambulance ride off the course, <laughs> and this one is not my fault. I, well, okay, I say it's not my fault. This is my responsibility, sure. So I went out hard thinking I was going to win this race, and humidity. Michigan has heat and humidity. In California, we don't have the humidity here in the Bay Area. And man, that humidity just destroyed me. And again, somewhere around mile 22, I just, I had nothing left. I was puking, and I was stumbling. And I, there were some fans on the side of the road and they were drinking mimosas, you know, Saturday morning or whatever, Sunday morning, I don't remember. And I'm like, is that a mimosa? And they're like, yeah, you want one? And I just reached out, grabbed it, and crushed it. And then I, I felt reinvigorated. I started running again. Passing people, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm back. This lasted maybe what two, three minutes, and then I was back in the shade, laying under another tree. This time, worse uh, yeah. than before. And I don't know that somebody saw me and called an ambulance, but or if this ambulance just happened to be randomly driving by, but they stopped, and like, hey, dude, get in the air conditioned ambulance. I'm like, no, no, that's for you know people with serious injuries or health conditions. I don't want to take away from someone who might need it. I mean, I'm I'm fine over here. I think I maybe just have a little heat stroke or something. <laughs> the, the, the EMT's is like, "Oh my god, get in the ambulance! What's wrong with you?" <laughs> and I didn't want to explain that. I just, you know, chugged mimosa cause <laughs> a mimosa because that's then I lot a lot more to. So yeah, it's yeah. I refused to get in the back of the ambulance, though. So I sat in the front seat, and he drove me back to the start. And then they they checked me out, but. Yeah, you know, I mean, these things happen to all of us, right? Like, raise your hand. Who hasn't called an Uber in the middle of a marathon or or been carted off the course in an ambulance? Just part of normal, normal running, I would say.
1: Yeah, I guess when you when you run enough races, when you when you do enough of these things, then yeah, eventually some of these things catch up to you, or you have some of these amazing stories, which some of us don't have. So that's fantastic. I mean, that's awesome. How many races do you think you've run? over the 20, I guess, 20 years now that you've been running races? If you were to venture a guess, how many races do you think you've run?
0: Yeah, Casey, I mean, I, I don't know. I think Ultra Sign Up has, or Athlinks, one of those have like 121. But, you know, I was also running back in the, the 80s and 90s as a kid. My parents would take me out to little turkey trot or whatever, 5K or 10K. I remember, you know, I was probably 10 and I was out doing a, a 10K race and my parents were driving behind me. You know, they wanted to make sure I was okay and that I'd finish it. And there was an off-leash dog, and they came up and like, "What are you doing, sitting down?" I'm like, "Oh, there's a dog over there, right?" And so they <laughs> had to drive with me to get past the dog. So none of none of those races are are online because they were back in the day. So it could be closer to, to 200. So I'm not the most prolific racer, but yeah, but I've been at it for a while. And like I said, you know, consistency. Once once I took those few years off from working out in college and, and got out of shape. I never wanted to have that happen again. So I do try to, to train consistently and yeah, get out and get out and race uh, a little bit. I probably, I know you've had some other uh, guests on the show, like Verity Breen, who's, you know, running every weekend or, or racing somewhere. And I'm not that, I'm not that prolific of a, of a racer, but yeah, I try to try to still race once in a while, just to stay, stay sharp. We love
2: the fact that you are just embracing adversity. You know, that's going to happen in races, especially with the race distances that you choose and the way you go after it. But also the parallels and, you know, Casey and I've talked about this just in life. Life is going to happen. There are going to be times where everything, you know, the, the race is going along well. In life, aid stations are coming up. You feel your stride. You feel your cadence. You feel like you're running with the wind at your back. But there are occasions when you maybe feel a little bit overextended. You feel yourself cramping up. You feel yourself wanting to give up and being able to understand and learn those lessons and to apply them in life, like you applying your, your race experiences and saying, hey, it's, it's not the end of the world. There's no shame in my game. And I can share and speak with confidence and some humor on the occasions where I went for it and it didn't work out. Yes, I took an Uber off the course. Yes, I hopped <laughs> in the ambulance after having a mimosa. We didn't talk We didn't talk about, oh, that's is that a Sprite on the course? <laughs> oh, no. All right. We'll have to get back to that story. But sharing that with other runners as well to sometimes get out of your comfort zone because you may surprise yourself but always there's something to learn when we navigate life adversity, and it's always something to learn as we navigate race or training adversity as well.
0: Yeah, Coach B, that's a, a great point. And, uh, you know, I think you're talking kind of uh, as running as a, a metaphor for life and uh, some of the challenges we face in life, whether it's, you know, injuries. I mean, you both and myself have, have struggled with different injuries. I'm actually uh, working through a, kind of a, a calf injury right now, but not just running-related injuries. You know? It could be you know, work, you get laid off, or you're in between jobs, or there's a stressful project going on at work, or families, relationships, we've all had, you know, relationships that have ended or gone bad, or families, you know, okay, maybe can't end those relationships. My younger brother, Eric, after one particularly bad fight where we were throwing bicycles at each other, and six six police showed up with guns drawn, he said, you oh, you better go on eBay and buy yourself a new brother. Right. So I mean, family is family and we're not we're not buying new family members on eBay and he <laughs> and I are talking again. But yeah, you know, you have those those struggles with, with life and with work and relationships and family and that yeah, Coach B, that's a great metaphor that parallels your your training and racing, right? The ups and downs and just the the consistency and keep working at things. From my side, I I do actually tend to use running as a I guess not just running, but cycling as well as a as a form of medication because I, I struggled when I was younger with some depression and some, I was never diagnosed, but whether you want to call it bipolar or just, you know, just being depressed or being a teenager, an emo teenager, you know, with long hair and a ponytail and just uh, trying to, to fit into the world. And yeah, I always found that that running and cycling and if you can do something every day, it, it does help with the, the hormonal levels and just making you you feel that you've done something worthwhile and that you're making some some progress. And, Right, control the, the things you control. Maybe you can't control what's going on with a relationship or with a work project or a difficult person in your life, but you can control whether you get out the door and, and do that five mile run or go for that bike ride. So yeah, that's a, that's a great point.
1: Talk to us a little bit, John, about you know starting to go for these ultra distances. Was that always a goal that you had in mind? Did somebody inspire you? Did Did a race itself inspire you? What made you want to say? And yes, (laughs) all all of the above.
0: So, no, great, great question uh, there, Casey. So, I guess going back, I think I'd always known that I was more suited for for endurance. So, in my school, we this was back in the uh, '70s when I was young, growing up in in fifth grade or whatever. And it was back before the everyone got a ribbon thing. Like it was very cutthroat. Like you're the winner, and the rest of you are losers. (laughs) And I was the loser. I was. Last picked for kickball, I was the slowest at all the sprints. But the one thing I found out I was good at, and maybe because no one else wanted to do it, was uh, there was a 600 meter run, and I don't think it was 600 meters. They just had us run around the grassy field of our school, which was full of gopher holes and knee-deep grass, and you know who knows <laughs> what else. And I won it. and I think because the other kids didn't want to run that far or gave up, or maybe you know I just endurance was my thing, but then I went to the city championship and I did not win that, but I won the first lap, <laughs> the first 400, I was in the lead and then blew up a little bit. But that's when I discovered that while I'm maybe not a super fast twitch guy or sprinter, like, you know, my brother's both scholarships, you know, played collegiate football and state champions and, and baseball and things. And I was more the slow endurance guy. But yeah, so I always had in the back of my mind that, you know, I watched the Ironman on you know back, you know they have it on TV once a year, and you see all these stories about people doing the Ironman, and yeah, that really called to me. That's how I got into to triathlons and how I got into endurance training, and uh, you know, did some half Ironmans, and really discovered that going longer was was definitely better suited to my my skill set and my gifts and my my strengths and maybe my my mentality as well. Uh, just because you know I don't mind suffering. I don't know if it's from you know, things that happened in my childhood, it's just, but I'm, I'm quite comfortable being, being uncomfortable or, or being miserable. I kind of find it, I don't know, comforting actually. But that's probably something for my therapist and I discussed, not the podcast, sorry. <laughs> but no, so so Casey, then you're asking, you know, did anyone help me find that? And yeah, so when, when I met my wife, Amy, at that race, she mentioned that she was training for this uh, stuff called ultra-marathoning. She had that friend, Christina Irvin, who would run Western States. And I hadn't really heard about any of this before. I think my father had once told me that, yeah, there's this crazy thing in California where people run a hundred miles, but you know, it's not really running. They're like walking half the time and it's a picnic and they're eating snacks and it's not serious (laughs) running like you and me do, you know, I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, but yeah, so I got out here and and I heard about it and I I showed up for my first run with some ultra runners and we were going to run up this, uh, if you guys know it, Sierra Zul up Kennedy, so it's a pretty long, it's like a four-mile steep climb up Kennedy, and then you got a mile and a half of rollers, and then you you drop down another five miles into Quicksilver Park. And that out-and-back, 22 miles or so, it's got thousands of feet of vert, and it's pretty exposed, pretty hot, and it's, it's a tough run. These guys all showed up, and they had, you know, camelbacks with bladders of water and multiple handheld waters and water strapped to their arms and their back. And, you know, I was, <laughs> I was carrying one of these... You know, like you go to the gas station and you get one of those twelve ounce plastic bottles of water, right, with the little screw off top. That's what I had on me. And I took off running, hammering, just like these guys over there walking the hill, we, we just started. This is nonsense. And so got to the turnaround point, you know, drank my water and started running back and then thinking we all know where the story is going. <laughs> There was a lot of walking and laying down in the shade, and it was a, a hard learning lesson. But that's when I, I really said, okay, I got to refocus, and I can do this. And Yeah, I wasn't uh, demoralized. I kind of took it as a challenge, like, all right, next time I'm going to bring two of these little bottles of water, <laughs> and maybe a gel. And uh, it took me many, many years of, of trial and error to understand the role that nutrition and hydration and even training no training. It just never occurred to me. I just thought you you go out and you tough it out and get it done. And I didn't realize that if you spend hours and log hundreds or thousands of miles, then it's actually uh, pretty enjoyable and not that difficult to do some of the stuff. You don't have to kill yourself and, and feel like you're dying. But yeah, that was probably a process of, of 10 years or so. I, I think I mentioned uh, in my first two ultra marathon or 100 mile attempts, I I DNF'd, so there's a a race called Umstead out in North Carolina, and I think I got maybe 60 miles there before my body just gave out, and then I tried the Tahoe Rim Trail, 100 miler, and I got 75 miles, and I got bad blisters, and and I had to quit, and it was after that that I I really kind of started talking to people and reading any any blog I could, you know, finding anyone who would tell me anything they could about ultramarathon and training and trying to piece some of this stuff together. And that's when I started my blog. So I have this, well, I haven't maintained it in a few years, but I, I had a running blog mainly for my mother, who says that I, I never use my writing uh, degree to write anything other than workbooks, which she doesn't care to read about SAP <laughs> software. So <laughs> so I started writing that blog as, you know, race reports. And uh, yes, yeah, so that first race that I ever finished was the uh, Black Hills 100 miler in, in South Dakota. And it was pretty special to me being you know Native American. This was on sacred uh, Indian land. And uh, I wasn't going to quit that one so i put in actually put in training i thought i did everything i could and i still barely finished by the skin of my teeth right I was walking the last two hours terrible blisters so it's another one of those things uh where you take things up a level and you think all right now i'm here i've got it this is as high as it goes and now i look back and i'm like oh that was probably only 10 or 20 percent of the training and preparation that i should have done and you know now i laugh i can't believe i thought i could run 100 mile around 35 miles a week training so I, I did Western States back in 2013, 2014, and I put in six weeks of 120 to 125 miles a week training, and it was all, you know, in the heat, in the mountains. And so just to, to you know, to look at something like that and say, okay, that's what I need to run my best, and then how did I ever manage to finish a 100-mile race on only 35 miles a, a week training? But, you know, it's a it's a learning process, right? You just got to have a community of people who can share information and knowledge with you and tell you like, yeah, that's pretty good. But you know, you might want to up that mileage, maybe even double it if you want to have a a serious performance. So yeah, it's just a a learning process, man. And and relying on people who've who've done it and can guide you.
1: If you like our podcast and sign up for our newsletter, where we give you weekly tips on how to run your best race and have fun in the process. Just go to racemob.com and sign up today. Wow. Incredible. I I mean, talk to us a little bit about the hydration, nutrition strategies that you've learned, you know, some of the the training blocks and, and stuff that you would tell your younger self now that you have more experience today.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, so much stuff is, is easier to to find online now. So many blogs and, and race reports and just, you know, Google stuff. But like, I had no idea, obviously about hydration. I showed up with this tiny little bottle of water, but I didn't realize things like as you become dehydrated, your blood becomes thicker. And the thicker your blood is, the harder your heart has to work to pump that sludge. And the slower you're going to run and the hotter you're going to get. And you don't have the the water in your in your blood to shunt blood to your skin to cool you off, right? With evaporative cooling. So all these things that probably most of us realize, like, yeah, you got to stay hydrated or you're not going to be able to cool yourself. You have to stay hydrated or your heart's going to be working too hard. It just never occurred to me. Like, I'm like, I don't know. I'm not thirsty. I'm not going to drink. And and then Casey, with the, you know nutrition, like and then I thought, okay, you need to eat, and so I would just pick one food. I don't know if it was a particular gel that I liked, and that's all I would take. I just have a bunch of those gels. I, I didn't understand how different types of carbohydrate are absorbed into the small intestine through different uh, transporters, right? So I didn't realize that if you're just taking all one you know type of sugar, whether it's glucose or sucrose or maltodextrin. That you're kind of limited. That there's a bottleneck with the, the transporters that work with that particular sugar. But if you're eating a variety of foods and taking in three or four different types of sugars, then you have three or four different transporters, and you can get in, you know, three to four. Well, it's oversimplification, but three to four times this, this many calories or, or gram of carbohydrate into your muscles. You know? Yeah. So I just, you know, I knew nothing about the role of mitochondria, you know, creating creating energy, and so. Now I realize that you need to do long runs to increase the number of mitochondria in your in your blood, in your cells. But then you also need to do high intensity training in order to strengthen those mitochondria. So if you're just doing all long slow stuff, you're you're leaving so much on the on the table. But yeah, if I could go back to my younger self and be like, idiot, drink, carry <laughs> water with you or sports drink and and drink. Electrolytes maybe on a hot day, right? And yeah, eat a variety of of foods. Don't just eat that one gel the whole time because you know that works for you and you know with your training make sure you're getting in the the volume as well as the intensity because you need both of those to to maximize your performance so i do feel as probably if i could go back in time and tell my younger self i I might have been able to finish those first couple hundreds instead of dnfing but it was it was the process, and yeah, you, know, you can't change it. So
1: yeah, I mean, you learn your biggest lessons from from failures sometimes. I, so. I do think so. <laughs> I, I do
0: think so. Yeah, because someone can tell you something, and I've done this before. People have told me things. I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure, okay, thumbs <laughs> up, whatever. Or I've told my son or a friend, but yeah, you really need to get more sleep, man. Four to five hours of sleep. You're sabotaging your training. Your your heart rate, your heart rate variability is is off, and you're just you're not going to be able to to push. And studies have shown that. You know, if you get 10 hours of sleep, you can not only use your cognitive capabilities higher, you can run faster, run longer, jump higher, all these things. But just someone telling you that, you're like, yeah, yeah, uh, I'll sleep later. <laughs> but then actually looking at your performance of when your sleep is bad versus when you're getting high quality sleep and you you have less stress in your life. being, wow, I'm really running well these days. I don't understand what it is. It's so odd. And then you're like, ah, oh, OK, I'm actually getting quality, restorative sleep. So, but yeah, you know, some of those things you just have to to learn. It doesn't matter how many people tell you, you know, you got to do it yourself to figure it out. I think At least I do. Maybe other people are more reasonable and like, yeah, that actually makes sense. Let me try that. No, not me.
1: (laughs) Well, I was just going to say, we we talk to our athletes all the time about finish line or finishing time. And, Mm. you know, you, you, those first couple of races, it was finish line. You were trying to hit the finish line. You were trying to make it, you know, before the cutoff, but eventually you started hitting some fantastic finishing time. So I guess, when did you realize that you could compete with some of the top of the top and, you know, how, how did you push your training? How did you encourage your training so that you could make sure that you could, you know, finish in times that you were proud of?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I have to give I I don't think about this a lot, but I, I do realize where it came from, and I have to give credit and a lot of thanks to the Quicksilver Running Club. So I I joined this Quicksilver Running Club, and at some point they decided, there's a guy named Adam Bloom, who, he's a serial entrepreneur, KC, kind of like yourself, he had some different companies that he's sold off and things that he's working on. And at one point, he had this company called Roe Mobile, and the idea was back in the days when you had Nokia phones and BlackBerry phones and... Apple phones, you know, iOS, RIM. You had all these different operating systems. And if you wanted to write a native app for a phone, you had to write it on four or five different operating systems. And so he came up with this concept of you just write the code one time and this tool then translates it to all five operating systems. And he sold that off to, uh, I don't even remember who he sold it off to, but he made a lot of money. But so when he was starting that company, he sponsored a race team for a Quicksilver Running Club. So we had the Quicksilver Running Club, and then we had this USATF or Pacific USATF Running Club. And he got us all these matching singlets with his Roe Mobile company logo on there and Motorola. That's who he sold it to. But anyway, so then I started, you know, we, our goal was to win this national championship, but this Grand Grand Prix of ultra racing. So there were probably eight or 10 races on the calendar that season. And you'd send a team of four or five people to each race, and you got points for how high you placed. And our goal was to, it was just a men's team at that point. Now we have both men's and women's, but we just wanted to, to win the, the PA USATF Grand Prix Series. And so I started training with a number of other runners like Adam. And there was another guy, Sean Lang, who was very instrumental, and Pierre-Yves Cloutou. A lot of these guys are, are still running. And I was looking, you know, asking them like, hey, you know, what are you guys doing for training? And how many days a week do you run? And what's your weekly mileage? And their answers were all very different from mine. <laughs> so I'm like, wait, you're not running three days a week, 35 miles? And John's like, no, I'm running 75, 80 miles a week. Wow. And that that's when I'm like, oh, man, these guys are running twice as much as me. And they're being much more consistent. And so for me, that was, you know, an eye opener, game changer, whatever you want to say. And I, I made a goal to run every day. It didn't matter how fast or how far. I just wanted to get out the door. Know, get over to quicksilver run my five mile loop i mean go to the creek trail run three miles i didn't have a minimum but you know, I, I think in the back of my head like at least a 5k maybe five miles maybe eight miles a long day maybe 10 or 12 miles but then i was looking at the kind of training that they were doing and again this was before strava so you couldn't really stalk other people you had to actually ask them like hey what are you doing what are you running and he's like oh i'm doing 20 miles today and then i'm doing a 50k on sunday Wait, wait what <laughs> <laughs> wow, I was gonna wow. take the day off before the the fifty k and yeah, so just hanging out with these guys and racing with these guys and and seeing what they were doing and training and really realizing I need to step my game up and when I started running every day and I, I bumped that mileage up, I discovered for me that my body if I run at least fifty five miles a week, I run pretty well, and if I run seventy five to eighty miles a week, I can throw down some good results and anything above that, you're playing that game of marginal gains versus getting injured, right? So the the curve kind of flattens out. And yeah, you might be able to get a little more performance if you do 100 mile a week or 120 mile a week, but you're also really raising that risk of injury. And that's something that it took me a while to understand that I can get by with 75 to 80 miles a week and still have some good results. I don't necessarily need to put in those 100 120 mile weeks. It's slightly better if I do, but then the, you know, the risk of injury increases exponentially. But yeah, just that, that process of Hanging out with those guys and seeing what they were doing, and so I did this Aloni. It's a Aloni 50K. It's my favorite race. It's usually on or near my birthday every year. My birthday is May 19th, and it was always May 18th, May 20th, May 19th. And for people listening on the podcast who aren't from the Bay Area, it's a pretty tough 50K race with about eight or nine thousand feet of vertical gain. Ooh. It's all in rugged Aloni wilderness, point-to-point race, and. I went out on that race, and I'd gotten in really good shape. I had some results, and I decided I wanted to win the race for my birthday. And so I went out on the opening climb with uh, my teammate and friend of me, Jean Pommier, who many people in the Bay Area know. He's a little older runner, I think in his 50s, but he's still super fast, faster than me, and you know wins races and just throws down. And uh, he and I were, were running up this hill together, off in the front, in the lead, and I told him, yeah, today's my birthday, and uh, I'm planning to win. And he looked at me, and then he just took off sprinting and dropped. <laughs> Never saw him again in the whole race. He beat me by 15 minutes. <laughs> but but I finished second in that race. And I think I was, you know, my goal was to, I'd run it before in five hours, 45 minutes. And I think that day I ran right around five hours. It might have been a 5.01 or something. Wow. And that's when I realized, this is a stout time. I finished second. The only guy who beat me was Jean Pommier. And some of the guys I finished ahead of are guys that I've respected as much stronger, much faster runners. And I wrote a blog, a race report in my blog, which essentially said, you know, I actually feel like a real runner now. I'm not an imposter. I'm not this, you know, kid who would run with his dad and be struggling in a 5K and want to pretend to trip and hurt himself just so he could stop running and have an excuse to quit. Like I it was the first time I really thought, wow, you know, I can do this and I'm I'm not an imposter. I'm not a fake. I'm a real runner. And I, you know, it's just the, the confidence of, of saying that out loud and writing it in a, a race report for everyone to read is sort of this cathartic effect that, all right, I put a stake in the ground. I've said, I'm a real runner and now I, I've got to prove it. I've got to keep training and keep backing it up. And yeah, so that's, that's, that. for me, that was the turning point of being the guy who doesn't finish races to the guy who goes out thinking he can, he can do well, or, you know, finish the race, maybe not win it because, you know, we're all getting older and I'm, I'm 48 now and my days of winning races might be behind me, but I can still, you know, go for PRs or, or go for fast times or just even just nowadays for me, it's not about a particular time. It's about moving well and having a good race, right? Putting in the training and the preparation and the execution so that you're actually enjoying it, moving fast, having fun, and, and not feeling like you're dying. I've discovered that's actually more enjoyable than, being miserable the whole time and getting to the finish <laughs> line and i'm never going to run another one of these stupid races again you know why not run the same time but have it be uh fun and enjoyable and chat with people and after you know take some pictures afterwards I'm like yeah that was great so i guess priorities priority shift i'm still a competitive guy don't get me wrong but at least i'm sort of realizing that uh I'm not going to the Olympics. I'm not going (laughs) to be the fastest guy to every race I do, but you know, that's fine.
1: And you know, not every race has to be your goal race. There's there's different reasons for, for every run. There's different reasons for every race. And, you know, you touched on a few points that just want to definitely echo, which is consistency and commitment and also community, right? You probably wouldn't have been able to achieve these great highs without the community Definitely, part of, definitely
0: would not have no
1: pushing you along the way, teaching you new techniques and new things along the way. So um, that's right. That's, that's fantastic. I love that. Let, let's talk about the Barkley Marathon. Oh, I definitely right. want to dive into it. You know, I mean, you definitely you have a great blog post about your whole adventure, but want our audience to know, first of all, what is the Barkley Marathon for those who have not heard of it? And then your involvement, how you got into it and tell us about your experience.
0: Yeah. So I think, Many people have probably seen the, the documentary or the Netflix. If you haven't, go watch that on the Barclay Marathons. But essentially, it's this uh, race in Tennessee, an old-school race, where you're not allowed any GPS or you can't wear your own watch. You're, you're issued this $10 Walmart watch, and you can bring a, a compass. And they have a map, which they unveil right before the start of the race, and then you have to copy it down and create your own map. But course isn't marked and most of it's not on trails. And so you're just wandering through the woods looking for these books that are hidden under rocks or up in trees or in rivers and just all map and compass navigation and bushwhacking. It's just so steep, so miserable. There's these briar thorns and I didn't necessarily fall or remember falling, but when I so the one time i did the barclay i did not finish i think only 14 or 15 people have ever finished over the 40 years most years no one finishes but i got back to the hotel room after the two laps and i was pretty happy even though we were over time on the second lap i I did one lap in each direction and i felt like yeah that was something but when i was taking a shower i noticed these little like black dots on me on my chest like are these like ticks or mites or is this dirt what is this and I picked at them, and most of them came out. And I'm like, oh, that's so weird. I don't even know what those were. And then kind of down on my, my stomach. And I was not ripped at the time, so I had a little bit of uh, beer belly down there. And I got this like infected pimple. I'm like, oh, man, this is gross. So I squeeze it and pop it and think nothing of it. A few weeks later, it's reinfected again. And this went on for months, over four months. So I kept having this infection. And so finally, I put some Neosporin on it and the Band-Aid over it overnight and I'm going to soften it up and then see what's going on. So the next day I take the bandit off and I squeeze it really hard with my fingers. This giant wooden thorn comes out. What? Wow. (laughs) Four months after I'd done the race, I've been carrying this Barkley sawbriar thorn in my skin for that long. And I still have the scar there. So anytime I want a a reminder of the Barkley, I just look down and see this little (laughs) scar on my, on my abs from, from that thorn. But No, I did not finish the Barkley Marathon, but I am proud to say I'm pretty sure I'm the only person currently serving a lifetime ban from the Barkley for showing up in a Cape and Speedo. So Laz, Laz, the conservative good old boy race director, was, was not impressed by my American flag, Speedo, and Cape. And I've not been and invited there's some back great to pictures
1: on your blog. There's some great pictures on your blog of that
0: Speedo. That's for that's Strangely, for darn sure. I have not been invited back. I don't know what the, what the deal is there. But in his defense, I'll say Laz does have a sense of humor. So at the start of the race, he gave us all these lanyards. And they had this heavy metal emergency beacon with a red button and if you tap that i guess twice maybe then it summons rescue personnel so handed one to every racer and i'm looking at the thing in in the car and i'm like well i don't even see where the battery goes like (laughs) i'm not sure this is real i'm like yeah, i'm gonna press it see what happens and i could just say it was an accident like i accidentally dropped it so i click it you know, no light goes off, no alarm goes off, nothing happens, it's still quiet. And I start furiously clicking the thing, and that's when I realized, this is just a complete gag. This is not an actual emergency <laughs> transponder beacon, it's just a piece of metal with a red click button on the top of it that does nothing. <laughs> and then, apparently, the punchline is that he gave us shirts later, and the shirts have a picture of a skeleton in the woods, and the skeleton is holding that thing, clicking it, and it says, help is not coming. <laughs> So, to his credit, he he does have his own quirky sense of humor. I think he's a good guy, despite the uh, ban. The other thing, uh, Casey, is those $10 Walmart watches that you have to wear, because you can't wear your own GPS. You can't have a GPS. You can't even wear your own watch. The thing was so cheap that in the first night when it started raining, my watch fogged up and I couldn't see anything, so I had no idea like how long I've been out there, what time it was. Every time I look at my wrist, all I see is this condensation on this this cheap watch. Oh man, I you know I was so furious, but at the other you know at that point you just got to laugh and like oh this this whole race is ridiculous. So of course this makes sense, you know, having this non-functional watch. Oh man, but yeah, good times. But the Barkley people always ask, you know, how do you get into it? And I actually don't mind telling people how to apply. If someone wants to go for a run with me or wash my car or something, I'm happy to tell them how to apply. But it doesn't really matter because you're not going to get in. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you need the kind of resume. The last, the race director looks for certain things like, have you done a 200 mile race and, you know, finished in the podium or won it? You know, have you run across America? So if you're, you're a triathlete and you're like, oh, I'm a really fast triathlete and you you send in your essay. he gets I think last time I checked seven or eight hundred of these essays for the forty wow. forty spots. Wow. Mm. so you you can send the email to the right email address at the right minute, on the right day, with the right format. and unless you have the resume, you're not going to get in. So that's what I tell people who are serious about doing Berkeley is don't worry about the application process. There's people who will be happy to share that with you once you're where you need to be. But worry about putting in the work. You know, go out there and and do some of those epic adventure races or 200-mile races or self-supported runs or bike rides across America. And there's even kind of, it's called a, we call it baby Barkley, but it's it's a smaller 50K version of the Barkley that you can actually get into because he lets thousands of people in that one. And it's mainly on trails, so they don't have to deal with the going through the forest and, the, and having the park service cut off the number of people. But if you win that race, then you, you get an automatic entry, or if you, you know, maybe second or third at that race it'll it'll catch his eye so that's what i would say if you want to get into the Barkley, is do those things because just sending the email okay that's not gonna that's not actually going to get you in the race if you don't have the resume every year he gives one spot to someone who it's called the sacrificial version (laughs) and that's someone he thinks has no chance of finishing and just lets them in for fun right so he has the 39 elite athletes who who honestly have no shot either but maybe maybe and then he gives the one spot to someone he doesn't think has a shot at all. The year I did it, that the one person who he thought had no shot, this woman had finished third place at the Tahoe 200. Wow.
1: So wow. it's not like,
0: you know, yeah. I've run a marathon, <laughs> not a let, sacri- <laughs> let me in. Even the sacrificial <laughs> wow. virgin has to be someone who's legit and has, a, and has a resume. So I know that's probably not what listeners want to hear if they're dreaming of getting into the Barkley, but sign up for the, the baby Barkley and you still get an experience. You don't get to do, you know, all of the, the Barkley, but I think you even get to do rat jaw or some of the signature really steep oh. Briar climbs and you get a taste of it. So, and I think after that, if you still want to do the Barkley, then come talk to me, but chances are you'll say, no, that, that's good. <laughs> I'm cool.
1: And you mentioned two laps, two laps out of five laps. Is yeah, that right? right? And then they there's like 20 miles each lap. something like that supposedly 20 miles but the thing is every year that someone has
0: managed to finish the race laz has made the race harder and longer (laughs) the next year but he still calls it 20 mile loop so you can actually look at the maps that people have done year over year and how they've gotten longer and longer so realistically it's probably up to 26 miles per per lap or per loop now and yeah if you do if you do three laps it's called a fun run and you you get it official fun run finisher. If you do all five, then you're official Barkley finisher. But as I said, I think only 14 or 15 different people have ever completed it. Some of them have completed it multiple times, Mm -hmm. but he, I think people say, you know, more people have been on the moon than finished Barkley, which is technically true. So I realized I just don't think I have what it takes to, to finish that race without Mm -hmm. living there and training on the course and, and knowing it by heart because you lose so much time. So with, With a map and compass, you know, trying to navigate, I was running with uh, Amelia Boone, who's a OCR adventure racer, you know, world champion. And we finished the first loop and we found this book that was, they're called capstones, So basically it's just the mountain has some rocks that are sticking out of the dirt, right? And so there's one particular rock and we found the book and we put it back, but there's, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 similar rocks you know, for miles around and, and trees and there's cliffs and it's just, it's super treacherous. And so we found the book and we went down the hill back to the camp. We probably spent, you know, some time eating, putting on warm clothes, and then we regrouped and we turned around and did the loop in the opposite direction. So now we're going back to the book that we just found literally an hour ago. We'd been there. We wow. get back to the spot. We can't find the book. We can't find the stone. Two hours we spend wandering. I'm I think we're going in circles, and like, no, this is a different rock because that, that lichen there is brown, not green, or, you know, that pine cone wasn't there. And honestly, two hours, and then finally some other runners came up who were behind us, and they're like, oh, yeah, the book's right over here. And I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> so, so, yeah, unless you really, it's not so much the navigation and the route finding, but even when you're in the right spot, if it's dark out, it was dark, it was nighttime, it was rainy, foggy. We we're freezing. Our headlamps just basically reflected the light the, the rain and the fog, so the light didn't light up anything. It just bounced back into your eyes. So I'm like, all right, this headlamp's totally useless. Let's turn that off. So we're just wandering around in the dark, flipping over rocks, looking for this uh, damn book. And so that's 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 the Barkley. It's just it's it's fun. It's miserable. It's you know the best thing I've ever done. It's the worst thing I've ever done. And at this point, I'm, I think I'm good. I'll stick to races like hard rock where you can actually do some running and you're not winding around in the dark without a headlamp. i worried that you're going to fall off a cliff looking for a book.
1: Thankfully, you weren't still in your Speedo at that point in time. So, man, no, this of well, to me,
0: a funny story because I brought four or five different jackets and I told my crew, you no, know, they each had different names, right? This is the super cold jacket. This is the world champion jacket, right? This is the whatever. And I get back to the car, and we had probably a 15-minute argument over what jacket I was going to wear when we went back out. And they made me wear every jacket. I'm bundled up like the the Michelin man. I can't move my arms. And I was still freezing out there. And people were DNFing who had on Gore-Tex jackets and, and base layers. And so I think at that point, it's more about you need to be moving, eating calories and moving to produce heat. Because if you're just standing around in the cold, it doesn't matter, you know, how much gear you have on, you're going to be freezing. So yeah, I might as well have been wearing a speedo because even those five jackets weren't really getting the job done. And JB, did it make your experience a
2: little better that you had an accountability buddy, someone here from the Bay Area, someone who had, you know, a lot of, you know, experience as an accomplished endurance athlete, versus doing that, you know, kind of out on your own. Oh yeah, for sure. I
0: would probably realistically. So full disclosure. I, I bought Compass, and I bought like three compasses. bought the most expensive compass, bought one that went on the thumb, and I had an emergency compass tied to my pack, because I'm like, if I lose this compass, I've got another one. I'm good. And I took all these courses on how to navigate with map and compass, and how to do dead reckoning, and I'm like, oh yeah, I've got this. I get out there into Berkeley. I had nothing. I'm like... I, I don't know how to use this compass. Like, like, I, I can't see my unimum, right? This is useless to me. Because I was in a totally different environment where I didn't have my landmarks. And when you're just in a forest, every tree looks the same. There's, no, there's nothing to get as a reference point. So having a compass to me was useless. And so I actually did not use my compass or my map, really. I just kind of followed, well, obviously looked at the map and followed the contours. But having... Being there with other runners, so there's another runner who'd done it before, this guy Jody. And he was nice enough to allow Amelia and I to run with him. At least until he dropped us going down uh, Rat Jaw. And you have to go through this tunnel through the prison. And we overshot, Amelia and I overshot the turn. And so we lost contact with him. But for the, the time that we were running with him, that was a godsend. Just having someone who knew the course had finished a fun run before. But then when it was just Amelia and I on our own, we started... Saying, well, maybe we should wait for Johan, who's you know behind us, and he he might know the way. We uh, we definitely had some help there, and then once Maggie Gluterol was and, and Ian Keith, two other runners who helped us find that book. Once the four of us teamed up, and then we found Jamil Curry, who's a famous uh, filmmaker and blogger, and he was actually he's done this race five six times I think, and he was lost. He was sitting on the wrong the wrong capstone, eating a burrito. And like, I can't find the book. I'm like, well, that's because you're nowhere near where the book is, dude. It's over (laughs) on this other ridge. So yeah, I mean, yes, it helps to have a veteran, but even the veterans would would get lost out there. But yeah, five five sets of eyes are probably better than one. So I definitely felt better once uh, we were in a group, including some veterans who'd been on the course before. If I was just out there by myself, I would probably still be
1: out there by myself
0: i would not be in tennessee i might be in kentucky or some other state but as long as have... you end
2: up inside the prison you know that would be
0: yeah <laughs> yeah well i've thought about it i'm like oh it looks nice and warm in there <laughs> I, wonder if I wonder if i can get a room for the night what, cell block uh, c is that open <laughs> yeah.
1: so jb what are you training for now do you have any races up on the horizon is there anything that you're you're working towards
0: yeah, I have been. I was super excited about going back to the Black Hills, which was my first 100-mile race that I finished, and I was going to do that on, on June 25th, and I, I spent three weeks up in Tahoe at a friend's uh, condo at Squaw Valley, or Olympic Valley as its name now, altitude training, but unfortunately I'm having a problem with my right leg that I'm trying to work on. I don't know if it's uh, hamstring-related or calf-related or knee-related or maybe all of the, all of the above. <laughs> So, you know, I'm doing the dreaded strength training and stretching and foam rolling. That's another thing I would go back and tell my younger self is, you know, you can do all these great workouts and build up your engine, but it's like putting a souped up turbo engine in an old junky car. If you're not doing all the other stuff, the, the cross training and the foam rolling and the stretching and working on the tight hips and working on the weak glutes and muscle activation, you put that turbo engine in that old car, and it's just gonna blow it apart. And so I think that's what happened. Is I've really focused on the, the power and the lungs and the, the top speed, but I've I've neglected the nuts and bolts and the things that keep the, the car together. So now I'm I'm working on that. But so I did not go to do that Black Hills race. But Casey, looking at the the positive side, it gave me a chance to go up to Western states and pace and crew a good friend of mine a guy named Lauren Lewis, who's part of the Quicksilver Running Club, a local boy. And he'd paced me in 2018 when I'd done Western States. He did the the last 40 miles with me. And so I'd been coaching him or mentoring him, I guess is probably a better word, and preparing for Western States because he'd done it once before and he did just under 29 hours. And he wanted to see if he could maybe do 24 hours or improve his time. And so we put in all the training. We we got him where we thought he needed to be. He was actually beating me on, on training runs. You know, we did a 5k downhill run and he beat me about, about 15 seconds. So I knew he had the, the speed and the, the legs for it. It was just a question of, you know, if he could handle the nutrition and the heat and all these other intangibles. And so I went up there and we were crewing him and we were excited to see him at, you know, the first Robinson flat, which is like a 50k, 32 miles into the race. And he came in and looked like a shell of himself. Like, there was nothing there. He just cooked himself, overworked himself, you know, I guess running way too hard in the, in the high country at, at altitude in this rough terrain. And so that's when we're like, oh, okay. Sub-24 is probably out the window. Now we just need to get him to the finish line. And so we were at mile 50. The next spot, we could see him. And we start seeing people who had been running with coming in, and he's not there yet. And then we do the online tracking, and he's still two aid stations away.
1: Wow. So like
0: wow. four hours later he comes in and he's like, good news. We're all going home. You have the day off. I'm dropping out of the race. And of course we, you know, being, being the crew and knowing that that's, it might be what he's saying, but it's not what he, he means like, Oh, sadly, you know, we didn't park the car here. We left the cars at the other aid station. We walked here, You know, some bullshit excuse. (laughs) I'm like, but good news. I've got my my water bottles on and my running shoes and I'm going to run with you. From here, from Michigan Bluff to Forest Hill, so the next seven miles we can we can talk about it, and you can tell me, you know, everything that's bugging you. <laughs> so we did that, and we got to to the high school mile 62, and then uh, Erica Mertens, his other pacer, did the next 20 miles with him down to the river, and kept him moving. And he started passing people, even when I was hiking with him. I think we passed six people, and then with Erica, he passed another nine and another six. And then when I picked him up for the last 18 or last 22 miles, I guess it was nighttime. It was cooling off, and he was you know starting to recover from his nausea and the heat and the altitude and all this stuff. And he started doing some actual running and like fast running. I mean, okay, nine minute miles on on mountainous trails. He we passed 20 other runners, including their wow. pacers. So Those like 40 other people in just a five mile stretch. Wow. And then the next section he passed 14 more people, and then. He ended up moving up from 183rd place to 109th place. Wow. And I think he negative split the second half of the race. Or it was very close. Wow. Yeah, and like wow. I said, at some points I was wondering, like, with my gimpy leg, am I even going to be able to? You know, he's running down the the paved. There's like the last mile where you you run down to this high school track, and he's flying down there, and you know he's throwing his flashlight and his water bottles and his vest and I got to stop and pick all this stuff up and I'm trying to catch back up to him like oh god I don't know if I can catch back up to him he's <laughs> flying so fast and so so yeah you know sometimes you you have a train you train for something you set a goal and it doesn't work out but then you find something else and I wouldn't trade that for the world being there I know it wasn't his sub-24 goal that he he had in mind but I think Seeing that he was, you know, had died on the course and wanted to quit and that he was able to come back from that. And, you know, I talk a lot about there's no no shame in failure. It's fine to quit sometimes. But there are other times when you should be ashamed to quit. Like if you still have something in the tank and there's there's nothing wrong with you, you just went out too hard. Well, then that was your mistake. Now you need to suck it up and deal with it and finish this darn race. And he did. And just that that hard running at the end, the fast running, the effortless running, we were just having a blast and high-fiving each other and whooping and hooting and hollering. I think some of the other runners might have been annoyed, you know, because you're suffering. You feel like you're dying. And then this jackass and his buddy come running by you. woo yeah, This is great! High-five! We got a couple of looks like, oh, not today, man. Just get out of here with that. But, yeah, so I was thrilled for Lauren, and I was I was glad that I was able to to be a part of that, but Casey, I'm going to see if I can get my, my leg healed up and and get out to Colorado on the 30th of this month for a hundred mile race. It's similar to hard rock, but it's, it's an off-brand version of hard rock. It's called the Ure 100. So hard rock, you need to get into a lottery and it's super hard to get into the race. And and I didn't get in this time, but Ure, anyone can sign up for, and it's actually harder than hard rock. I think hard rock has 30 or 33,000 feet of vert, but Ure has 40,000 feet. And uh, so, if I can get this leg even halfway, halfway working, don't tell my my PT guy over at uh, Competitive Edge that uh, <laughs> he <laughs> said I could do a little Dr. running. Vandy. I'm not sure 100 miles and 40,000 yeah. feet of vert is what he had in mind, but I might give it a shot if I can make a little more progress on on this uh, getting this leg short up. Well, you're in good hands with uh, Dr. Vandy and team over there.
2: Yeah, so yeah, big fans guy. of theirs. Yeah, what a wonderful. Wonderful podcast, great storytelling, and great tips, great takeaways for runners that apply to the everyday blue-collar runner as well as as much as the long-running endurance trail enthusiast or marathon runner. And thank you for that, John. We really appreciate it. We
0: really appreciate your time. Man, overall. thanks for having me on, guys. And yeah, I guess the I would say the the big tip here is do not show up in a cape and speedo because nothing
1: nothing good is going to come from that. <laughs>
0: You know, everyone knows the stuff about don't try something new on race day or coach B, you know, don't take a hot shot. If you've never had one before, I think I heard you mention that. Right? So I, think, I think the listeners know all the basic stuff, but this is the advanced class. So do not show up at a Cape and Speedo if you, if you want to have a good race.
1: There we go. John, where, where can people find you if they're looking for you, if they're looking to connect? the guadalupe
0: garbage dump i'm not online i'm not one of these you know i know community is big but i'm not the online community guy so you're not going to find me on facebook or or twitter but if you want to find me i'm always out training at the uh, garbage dump by my house it's off of coleman and guadalupe road (laughs) some of the best trails for running that's right. No, no, That's nobody right over here. That's
1: awesome. And maybe we'll get you to write uh, some race reports and whatnot for Race Mob or get oh, your blog yeah. restarted and stuff. But, you know, I mean, I'd love to do that. That would be that. a
0: good uh, impetus to get me uh, blogging again, is if I do manage to make it to the starting line of a race report. I'll, I'll write something that you guys can throw up on the, on the blog here over at race mob. Yeah. That's great.
1: We would love it. We would love that, it. Absolutely. Sure. Happy to do thank it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for spending oh, the thanks time. Again, the guys. Stories this is great. Fantastic. And, uh, I'm sure that this is just the start of the longer conversation. Yeah. So thanks so <laughs> sounds, much, John. Sounds <laughs> appreciate good. It. See you out there. <laughs> all right. All right. Bye guys. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the race mob podcast. Check out all of the show notes or find a running buddy online at racemob.com. Please subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave us a review. Until next time, keep on moving.